To me, the energy transition is about education, I think, more than anything, making sure that people are aware of, of the role that energy plays in our lives and the role that energy plays in climate change, because some people over-exaggerate it, some people under-exaggerate it, and I think we just need to right-size that bigger. And then knowing, you know, how to derive policy and law and how, how do we build the framework around which to adapt based on the, the current understanding of the world. We are here to try to explain to you what it is we do here. The solar industry in the U.S. employs more people than Google, Apple, Facebook, and Twitter combined. The most valuable commodity I know of is information. Wouldn't you agree? Welcome into the Green Insider Podcast, powered by eRenewable. I am your host, Fred Davis. Episode 115 of the program happening right now, and we continue on with part seven of our University of Houston series, Cougs Energizing the Energy Transition. We have another fantastic episode for you today. Mr. Neil Siegel, third-year law student. Uh, he's got a master's from Tel Aviv University, uh, undergrad from Arizona. He is just an all-around wonderful human being and he's got his sights set on making huge changes to the energy transition. But before we get to Mr. Siegel's story, let's hear from our CEO and co-founder, Mr. Mike Niemer, telling you what it is we do here at eRenewable. At eRenewable, we know going green is important to your business and your ESG rating. Besides offering PPAs and VPPAs, through our network of clean energy professionals, we can also offer renewable natural gas, or let us help you lower your carbon footprint with responsibly sourced gas from a leading global energy provider. Maybe you need green energy credits, whether it's unbundled RECs or RSG certificates. Your path to net zero and decarbonization is one step closer with the renewable. For more assistance, please call us at one 866 renew one Thank you so much for that, Mr. Mike Niebuhr. You can find out more about the company over at eRenewable.com. Give us a follow on our LinkedIn page eRenewable and the Green Insider Podcast. We are going to be live from the NEMA conference this week in Bastrop, Texas, just south of good old Austin. So uh, we'll be sending over some shots from that. So stay tuned for all of the great content and all of the uh, information you're going to get from that conference. Looking forward to doing that. And of course, as always, you can become a Follower Friday member when you follow us on our LinkedIn page. And so you, we can find out what you and your company are doing to navigate through the energy transition. Speaking Speaking of navigating the energy transition, this young man, Neil Siegel, has done just that already in his already young professional life, and he will continue to do so after he graduates from the University of Houston Law Center in May. But right now, talking all things energy transition with Mr. Siegel, he's going to discuss his global experience already working for Israel, uh, how his love of energy was shaped at a very young age, why it's important to bring new ideas to old technology, especially when you consider the amount of energy demand that's only going to grow in the years to come and why he's so bullish on finance and risk as two possible options for him when he graduates in May and how he will ultimately affect the energy transition. It's a fascinating listen from a fascinating young man. Here is Mr. Neil Siegel. I like to say I'm a product of the American West. I love being outside. That, like, if you have to define my personality, it's it's the lover of the outdoors. Uh, so why am I in Houston? I have no idea. Uh, yeah, this is like a nice, warm, humid swamp. I grew up in New Mexico, uh, hanging out in the mountains. Went to school at Arizona to go run um, over there, and uh, just fell in love with kind of like 
energy and environmental and natural law, natural resources law, all those sort of things that make the ability to preserve the West and the outdoors and make sure that like, hey, I can enjoy these and I want to make sure that future generations enjoy these. Kind of after undergrad, didn't know what the heck I was going to do with my life going forward from there. And uh, grad school seemed like a nice way to make my parents happy and, you know, either get a job or keep getting educated. And, and I wasn't ready to get a job. So keep getting educated sounded like a good plan. And so I went, went over to Israel, did my master's at Tel Aviv University, which is an awesome experience. If anyone can travel abroad when they're studying, I can't push that forward enough. I feel like you learn more spending a year abroad than you can in 10 years of trying to read about what's going on on the other side of the world or something. Just okay. being there and having to deal with uh, whatever life may throw at you. Lived there and then started working for the Ministry of Energy in Israel, and they sent me right here to the energy capital, Houston. So i got to ask, how did you end up with the Ministry of Energy? I actually was working while in grad school at the Institute for National Strategic Studies. It's like Israel's biggest uh, security intelligence think tank. And my boss uh, there, who I was like his research assistant, he was the uh, former chief of staff to Ehud Barak, the former prime minister of Israel. So my boss was his chief of staff, and he had a lot of options open to him as far as, you know, how he could help me out. I'm very thankful for him, Gilad Sher. He's an attorney in Israel now. And he thought, you know, hey, with your passion for energy, and I had that passion way before I was even really knew what I was going to do with that. He said, why don't you look at something in the Ministry of Energy? You know, they have a position open in, in the U.S. You can go back and, you know, try and help Israel from abroad. Yeah, I moved here in 2013. Gotcha. Yeah, gotcha, I always gotcha, joke gotcha. that I've kind of lived my whole life on I-10. Because I, I grew up in New Mexico, went to school in Arizona and Tucson right on I-10. Had to go around the world every time I wound back on I-10. And then like went left Arizona, around the world to Israel, and then rounded up right back on I-10, just a little further down the line. You just yeah. can't help yourself. Look, I can't I help it. myself. Uh, I love I-10. You and drug deals, man. That's what the I-10, it's that corridor, <laughs> right? So let me ask you this, though. because And, and, and I just know just from a little bit from, from talking to you before the show... You talked about being an intelligence. What is the correlation there? Because I think that's one of the, the correlations that people don't get is the between intelligence, national security, and energy. There's a big uh, uh, connection there. Huge connection. I think it is probably the most understated connection. I think the war with Russia and Ukraine right now has brought to the forefront how much energy is part of our security. You know, and talk about, like, people are so shocked about Biden releasing all these, not shocked, but it's surprising. You know, this is the largest release of strategic petroleum from the strategic petroleum reserves. And, you know, like, the reason that those are there is just a national security concern that the Department of Energy has highlighted in case of times of dire need of the American people. Obviously, they can be, dire need can be politicized to a point when, right. when however that may be. But energy is really, really a security concern. And if, if I may jump ahead, one of the things I feel like you, are, you said you were going to ask us, so I'm, I'm just going to counter you and go for it. You know, one of the biggest things you see in the energy transition, or, and one of the biggest concerns I have is actually from like an energy security perspective that I, I've read re pretty recently that uh, like in 2100, the Earth's population right now, we're like just shy of 8 billion people, right? Or like 7.9 billion people. And 2100 is supposed to be like just shy of 11 billion people, right? This is an enormous population growth. And this chunk of that population growth is supposed to be in a lot of developing nations in Africa and Asia, like Southeast Asia, specifically China and India. And that amount of growth is going to demand an insane amount of energy. And, you know, like where we are right now with our trying to restrict the amount of energy, fossil fuel energy that we're producing, this is only going to come from so many places where, you know, and like the wars in the future are going to be fought over water, over energy. Even this war right now, you could arguably say it has some sort of energy ties to it, right? With Europe trying to stay away from Russian gas and, and Russia kind of holding that saber over Europe. 
this isn't necessarily a war over energy, but I think it's there, and I think it's just going to become more and more pronounced in the future. And I think the the stability of the Earth's population and making sure that you know there's like an environmental justice component to it, and that we give everybody access to energy, because America got to where we are today because of oil and gas, because of fossil fuels, and that put us in such a strong position. But to say, hey, we can't, we have to restrict that you know, to, to further nations, hey, you have to go on solar and wind. They can't develop 3 billion people more on solar and, and wind and these intermittent sources of energy. So energy security is a massive, massive component of where we're headed. How do we change this narrative to where, look, you're going to have to green the grid in more ways than one. Yeah, education is key. You know, I mean, the media plays a huge role in, in how the public understands and the perceives what the energy transition is. I think most of the knowledge of the energy transition is consumed via TV, Facebook, media, and so forth. And that narrative, it's tough. <laughs> I try to remain as apolitical as I possibly yeah. can in this conversation, and it's hard when you see things. And, and I feel like and it's also a thing of the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. But what little I do know, I, I realize that, yeah, as you you said, like fossil fuels are uh, going to be a part of the transition. They have to be. Uh, there literally is no other way around it until at some point, maybe in the far future when we can, you know, when technology can help us get to that point. But I think the media is pushing the narrative a little harder than, than it realistically is as far as clean energy is just renewable energy all the way. I definitely think we should push that as much as we can. We need, we need to push the development of that because we're not going to advance our acceleration towards that renewable energy goals and net zero goals if we don't push hard. So I, I applaud the media for pushing us in the right direction, but I think the, uh, just the characterization of, uh, of getting there without fossil fuels is incorrect. Yeah. Uh, there's Steve Coonan. I don't know if you're familiar with him. Uh, he was the undersecretary for science under the Obama administration. He's a physicist at uh, Caltech. Um, he was just on Joe Rogan's podcast talking about his book. His whole premise is just kind of a, he's a skeptic about a lot of the sciences out there right now. Uh, and he's a scientist himself. It's a physicist. And uh, he challenges a lot of the climate science data that's out there. And I don't necessarily agree with everything that Steve Coonan talks about, but he, he raises a point, yeah, you know, yeah. and it's like, look, there's two sides, and you can always find two scientists that are willing to agree on this, disagree on the same set of facts. Yeah. You know, we like to think that everything is black and white, it's easy to consume, and, and we are, the older we get, the more we know that life is complicated. There's so much gray in everything. Yeah, you know, I think every young kid is just thinks, oh, the world's going to, either you're right or you're wrong, and the older you get, you just, you know, that's not the case, so. I'm going to ask you, I'm going to ask you something that we asked uh, our guy Lotana, and... You know, he, I don't he, eat Chick Fil A. What's sorry. that? <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, but you know, he gave us some perspectives on how different the energy transition looks in Nigeria mm -hmm. versus the way, you know, kind of piggybacking on what you're yeah, saying sure. as far as how we view it here in the United States. You talked about how you know you've always been a lover of energy before it was the cool thing to do, and. How did your perspective change, or what kind of insight did you gain or, you know, illuminate to when you went over to Israel? Yeah, um, Israel was kind of the bridge for me from, from what I knew of fossil fuels and traditional energy sources to the energy transition. Um, Israel, like I, I had mentioned when we were talking earlier, um, we, there's always this joke in Israel uh, that Moses took the Jews and wandered them around the desert for 40 years to one spot in the Middle East with no oil. Uh, and it was like, come on, Moses, you couldn't have taken us to Saudi Arabia or something where we would have had just billions of reserves of, you know, riches. You got to took us to Israel. But, you know, for what it was, we went there and, you know, for the longest time, 
Israel didn't have any energy resources. We had solar and the sun and, you know, solar voltaic technology was coming into its own, but it took a while. But then there was the offshore gas discovery. And, you know, look at West Texas. If you look at like a night map of uh, flaring all over the world, uh, it used to be that you could look at Texas and it was bright, bright lights in West Texas. And people were going, what is that? It's like desert out there. And those were just gas flares, just flaring gas, because we didn't have a way to bring that gas to market. There weren't gas pipelines out there. And so the cheapest, best thing to do is to just flare it, which is just a massive waste of, of resources, not to mention the global warming effect that that has. But Israel found all this gas, and, and we realized, hey, uh, we Israel realized that you know we can actually do something with this gas. We can convert the entire nation's uh, bus uh, system in Israel, public transportation is a really big thing. Uh, make all the buses run on compressed natural gas. You know, we can reconvert coal plants and shut them down and build gas plants and peaker plants that focus on gas and, and just reconvert the entire infrastructure to be a gas-based infrastructure. And I realized that was kind of a light bulb moment for me that, hey, you know, like, any energy we find, we can always adapt. And, and yeah. humans have been adapting since the beginning of time. That's what we do. We find a situation and we adapt to it and we adapt our environment. And so I think this energy transition is just another iteration of a adaptation. And we're adapting as we go through this energy transition. That, that was the light bulb moment for me. It was just these gas fines in Israel. And then I really, really went off you know, into pushing for that. And it's funny, I was, I was reading the other day. And I remember at the time when I was working for the, for the Israeli government that we were so proud of. Uh, there was something like four to five TCF, trillion cubic feet of natural gas in place in some of these fields offshore in Israel, these ga deep water gas fields. Uh, and that was like a monumental discovery. And then I looked for comparison in West Texas and the Permian and the shale gas that we have here that we pretty much recently unlocked in the last few decades. And, uh, you know, we thought for a while, like America was doomed. We have no more, no more gas. We have oil. We're going to run out. We peak oil is behind us. We've got to bring in. And then all of a sudden we realized, hey, hydraulic fracking works and we can make it happen. And there's 15 TCF or sorry, 50 TCF in the Permian. So dwarfs the you know it's just like hard to imagine that a country is touting all over the world and all of its embassies and consulates what little reserves it has yet alone in texas alone we we just crushed it so we have to adapt right we have this natural resource here and i think we should use it in a responsible manner until at which point we need to adapt again and what you know whatever the best science is telling us we just keep adapting when we like hear about renewable energy, we usually like think about solar, wind, biomass. Mm -hmm. But as you mentioned, with the population growth um, expected in the next couple of years, um, what do you think are the most um, efficient renewable sources coming going forward? Efficiency. Uh, well, man, efficient. Number one, that's an easy question. That's nuclear. Uh, from an efficiency perspective, nothing beats nuclear. Uh, their capacity factor is like 92%, which is loads above any other energy source out there. And renewable is also, you know, the carbon-free power source. It's obviously got its waste problems, and it's not a renewable source because there's only about 80 years of uranium left to be mined, the current estimates. Um, so it's not entirely renewable, but sure, it is really green. And if we're going to hit our green targets uh, that the earth is setting, you know, not earth, but all of the, the global community of nations is setting on itself. Uh, I mean, India's net zero target is like 2070, the U.S. 2030, 2035, you kind of every, everyone in between on that range. 80 years of uranium will certainly fit within everyone's budget from the 2030 to the 2070 range. And even if we go to a little more, pretty sure 2020 plus 80, that'll get us to at least 2300, right? Oh, sorry, <laughs> 2100. There we go. My math is off today. It's a Friday. It's a Friday. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, but uh, 
my, my point is is that nuclear, I think, is a great bridge in, in terms of providing like a clean baseload power that, that Earth can use, that we can use, and that will allow developing nations to electrify themselves and to provide power to all these people and to help them like advance their, you know, their own nations. Wow, that's amazing. I actually didn't even think about nuclear because, yeah. you know, what media pushes out is usually just wind, solar. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, nuclear's cost gotten is the bugaboo, right? When it comes to nuclear, what is it? The cost. Is yeah, the yeah. I mean, developing a nuclear plant right now costs like nine billion dollars. It's astronomical. Well, but I can tell you the reason. When it doesn't, that's just when the prices don't. Go, yeah. You know. I yeah. Mean, that's if it's done on time, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, the, the the last nuclear plant right now, there's one being developed in Georgia. Georgia with uh, the whole tie or something. Yeah. Like that. But <laughs> other than that, they're all built from the 70s to the 90s. So we're looking at really, really like plants that are quite old and. They're, they're useful life. Typically, the Nuclear Regulatory Agency uh, Commission, they uh, give them like a 40-year license. Uh, so we're, we're kind of getting to the end of these licenses, uh, and people are having to say, okay, do we build new nuclear plants? Do we, we don't really want to extend those licenses because, you know, there could be structural deficiencies, whatever, and these nuclear plants have been running for 40, 50 years. You know, in the eyes of safety, we should probably cut those back, but what do we do next? Uh, so there's some great new technologies that are coming out on the nuclear front, and I think you've talked about it, about small modular nuclear reactors and just kind of these decentralized nuclear facilities. Rather than having one massive nuclear facility, you can have these small modular nuclear plants that can kind of go all over the grid, and they can go anywhere from powering the size of a small city in you know remote Alaska to building a plant like uh, the New Scale is the company that's currently the only one that's got actually the com- like a license from the uh, nucle- NRC. And New Scale, uh, they have a Voyager plant that's something like 12 of these modular reactors all in line together to provide about the output of a traditional, you know, uh, boiling water nuclear reactor plant. You have a a new technology that uses an old design, but in a modular way. Um, So it's innovation, but with science that's that's already there. And I think that's going to be the future because there's some really cool new nuclear ideas out there, but man, nuclear is such a a sensitive subject. Yeah, yeah. And so because of that, just the amount of time that it takes to get that approved takes forever yeah. right and because you know you want to make sure 100 percent that this isn't going to come back on you know and bite you in the butt well, that's the thing, right yeah. nobody wants to be the guy that the nuclear plant melts down on and then you know right. half and they're scratching like their that. head exactly thinking. yep well we'll start winding this thing down here what does the energy transition mean to neil siegel the energy transition i think the biggest thing is uh an education of the to the people of the world about the importance of energy in our lives. I think we all take it for granted. I think Lotana, he probably doesn't take it as for granted as much. You know, growing up in Nigeria and hearing that you're lucky if you have six hours of power a day, yeah. that's that will make you be very grateful for America where you can flip pretty much any light switch on and reliably expect that you know that there's going to be someone to match that power on the grid for you and while a light turns on overhead which is a miracle in itself when you think about the technology to to have grid matching to flip on a light switch and watch your light turn on instantaneously that's pretty cool so to me the energy transition is about education i think more than anything making sure that people are aware of, of the role that energy plays in our lives and the role that energy plays in climate change because some people over exaggerate it some people under exaggerate it and i think we just need to right size that bigger and then knowing you know how to derive policy and law and how, how do we build the framework around which to adapt based on the the current understanding of the world yeah what does neil siegel want to be when he grows up <laughs> uh what do i want to be growing up man my dad is my biggest hero so just be a good person you know okay. um 
I I would love that if you're looking at it from like a career perspective for a second. Sure, let's hey, go with that. Um, Take that question however you want. <laughs> I, I want to be known as someone that had an impact. That's important to me. Leaving a good impact on the world. That goes like I mentioned earlier. You know, like a kind of like this Boy Scouts thing. Leave no trace when you're hiking or something, but make it better than it was before. Okay. Uh, so, you know, if you can leave a Karen on the hiking path so that someone else won't get lost, even though you got lost, you know, make sure that they know how to find their way. Right. I, I like that philosophy. If I can do that uh, in the energy world, I would love to do that, which is why I think going into the fi energy finance is, is something that's really important. Law is obviously an option coming out of law school, and I feel like lawyers are amazing at what they do and, and making these deals come together, but I'd like to be the one making the deals and, and finding the companies that I can put money behind and invest in them and help them succeed. Why law then? Because you're and you graduate in May, correct? I do, yeah. So why yeah. law? <laughs> it took three years to to <laughs> come to years that. To yeah. that out? <laughs> you, you can talk to my mom; she's not happy about that. Um, it, you know why law? I mean, look, laws and everything it permeates all aspects of our lives, and I think that um, any anybody that's serious about financing energy transition needs to know about all the energy policies that underlie the actions that we take. It, you go talk to people about CERCLA and NEPA, they have no idea what the heck you're talking about, but you're talking about major environmental laws that impact literally everything you do, from the emission standards in your cars to you know how much oil and gas output is out there to federal leasing requirements to the content of petroleum in our iPhone. I mean, it's like everything is regulated by standards and policies, and those are what build our lives. So if you have a good understanding of that, I feel like you can better understand the energy transition in its entirety. How have you been able to navigate all the information that's out there? Because the amount of information, it's like a fire hose right it is. now. Is it's it is. It's drinking out of a fire hose. It absolutely is. I'm lay laying at night after reading books all day for law school. <laughs> and here I am, you know, I'm, I'm reading four different news articles. I'm reading books. I'm watching. I just finished watching an old movie, Switch, which came out like 15 years ago. But a geologist from UT put out about the energy transition. Uh, and even 15 years later, it's still really interesting. Um, there's, yeah. How do you silo all that information and know where to put it in your brain? I don't. I just kind of take it all as I can. And I, I think I do. I kind of like make a little mental note after I read something like, do I agree with that? Did I not agree with that? Why? And I challenge myself to think about why. Because it's easy to just say, oh, I don't agree with that and just brush it aside. But like you have to th challenge yourself to say why. Otherwise, you know, you're just going to be like polarized by it. And I, like I said earlier, I try to take the politics out of it. I want to be as objective as I can with this thing. Otherwise you're just letting people lead you instead of leading yourself. And I wanna make sure that I lead myself. So I, I challenge myself to just think about it, but gosh, there's just too much out there to like have a spreadsheet where I just put everything down there and left and right and how I, how I deciphered it. But I just think, you know, if, you're, if you wanna be in this industry, it's such a multifaceted industry, you just have to constantly be learning. Uh, you know, even if you've been in it for 40 years, you still have to be reading and keeping up because the technology is coming at you 100 miles an hour and people are just talking about these things that if you, if you don't know what they're talking about, you're, you're lost and they're just gonna keep plowing ahead. But to answer your earlier question, you know, one of the biggest things that I've been really fortunate to do during law school is, uh, is writing for the energy transition. I, I write, I have my own consulting company too, and uh, one of my clients was NAEP, which is the North American Prospect Expo. They're the largest oil and gas prospect expo uh, right here in Houston. They hired me a few years ago to help them build their international presence because uh, they wanted to bring in other countries that were hosting international oil and gas bid rounds and had oil and gas lease prospects to, to showcase them here in Houston. Um, and 
perhaps bring some American energy companies over overseas. And we did it successfully, and they asked me to start writing for their magazine. And so I've been writing every quarter for their magazine, and I've pretty much focused on international topics and energy transition topics. And the feedback that I have gotten from people that have read the magazine, is tens of thousands of readers apparently, they tell me, I hope it makes me feel good, is that... Uh, Man, like I learned so much from reading your article because what my goal is I find a really, really hard, complex subject and I try to make it incredibly accessible to the reader, but give them like some credit, you know. So I'll, I'll still touch on really complicated subjects, but I'll just make it accessible. I won't dumb it down for them, but I'll make it accessible. And I think that's what the energy transition needs to do is, is to take really complicated subjects that physicists and scientists are working on and respect our intelligence, respect the people's intelligence, but make it accessible for us because when they just present it to us in some of these complex ways we just our eyes glaze over and we're going to go back to doing what we were doing before and then we just miss out on on critical piece of our lives so so what do you want to do in the in the in the near term i mean you're like you're an agent yeah. uh, <laughs> you got a consulting firm you're about to be a you know you're going to be a, a law degree i don't know whether you're going to take the bar or not it sounds like you may or you may not you yeah. will yeah i am so yeah. what do you what, what, i mean you know I yeah mean, is it just i mean you talk about you know juggling things in the air i mean yeah. i mean what i guess the real question is what aren't you going to do <laughs> <laughs> uh you know i think like financing the energy transition and working in these vc or pe world is really cool because you can get to do what i do which is wear a ton of hats i love having 20 different responsibilities and not being bored by what i do but always having a different challenge every day and the vc world and pe world they see that you know because they're trying to help distress companies or turn companies around or work with startups these startups face challenges in every direction from a legal perspective from a financial perspective from an ip perspective from a technology perspective you know they're trying to just build a company in a hundred different directions and they need people that can guide them and help them with that and so that's the the value add i really want to bring to the energy transition is to go work in the financial world but not necessarily as a banker right. but as as a strategist as a chief risk officer and think about the 500 risks that these companies face it's easy to think risk oh political risk security risk what else risk i mean i could list off economic geopolitical just go on and on about the different risks that companies face. And so to be like a chief risk officer for a financial firm that is helping these companies, oof, it'll make the energy companies that are out there innovating that much more resilient and more adaptable and better prepared to take on the energy transition. Last two, these will be the two easiest questions I've asked you all day. Number one, what made you decide to uh, throw your hat in the ring for this podcast competition? Uh, Education. Seriously, I, it, it might sound cliche, but, you know, you talked about like the UH Energy Coalition and what it does for the community. And I, I've known Dr. Krishnamurti. Actually, I met with him when I was working uh, for the Israeli consulate here in Houston uh, for the Ministry of Energy. Way before I even had any interest in going to law school at U of H, I had a, a meeting with him uh, because of his you know, prominence at UH Energy. I understand like this podcast, you have a, you know, e-renewables has a following out there. Like I felt that if I could be a part of that and spread this message and maybe a few people would listen to this podcast. And even if it's only a few people that listen to it and think, hopefully you, I know you have a better audience than that, but if they hear it, they listen to it and they think, okay, you know, this will change the way I digest my energy news, or maybe this will make me read more energy news, or this will make me look at geopolitical conflict in a different light rather than just a battle between two countries is there what is what's beneath that uh if just challenge people to to think and broaden their perspective to me that that's that's all it is i love having intellectual conversations yeah. like this with people it's not about the money you know, and I, I didn't come here to claim all this money i came here to to see you know leave a mark behind leave a karen for other people so that they can kind of light their path better yeah 
Well, that's going to dovetail on my last and final question. So we know it's not the money on this one. <laughs> Why should you win? Why should I win? Um, well, I think my, my goal is a noble one. Uh, you know, I'd like to hope that, uh, that helping people is, is definitely a good thing. I didn't come here to win. I came here to just have a good time, to have a good conversation. I really believe in like what your mission is and e-renewables and UH energy. I think these are all really excellent causes. So I'm just really like have, happy to be a part of that. To me, that's exciting. I like to attach myself to things that are good. You know, it's like in basketball. You never want to play basketball with someone that's worse than you because you're not going to get better. Maybe you'll feel, you'll feel good because you'll win. Uh, but, but it doesn't make you better. Yeah, it doesn't make you better. You know, I feel like we're, like we're all still growing up. I still want to be a kid when I'm 70 years old. I don't want to be like an old grumpy man. I always want to be a young, spirited person. And I feel like, you know, if you can attach yourself to things that are good or people that are better than you or people that challenge you or make you think, you know, you're always going to be growing, whether it's spiritually, intellectually, physically. That's the way to live. So, Thank you so much for that, Mr. Neil Siegel. You can catch all of the U of H and Green Insider episodes over at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and on our website, eRenewable.com. Don't forget, part eight of the series is going to drop on Thursday. That'll be the final episode of the eight-part series, and then we'll do our live event, and then we will crown our winners. We're very excited about that. And look, while we're going to have a first, second, and third in my book, and I know this is very participation trophy sounding, but look, all eight of these young men and women deserve to win and have been absolutely fantastic. I can't thank Dr. Krishnamurti, Mike Niemer, Lauren Steffi, and of course my co-host, Miss Afriya Nasir, for all their hard work in making this thing happen. This has been an absolutely tremendous success, and I can't be more happy to be a part of what's been such an incredible experience. So I hope you guys have enjoyed it as much as I have enjoyed it as well. All right, we're here at NEMA Conference. Make sure you check us out on Twitter, on LinkedIn, eRenew2020. You will be glad you did. As always, shout out to the eRenewable team, Mike, Ann, Al, Roger. You know the crew. Without the audience, without the, the guests, we couldn't do it. So thank you guys for being part of it. This has been the Green Insider Podcast, powered by eRenewable. We make going green easier. <music> <laughs>